Welcome to Tech Talks with David Savage. Jack Richard Pearce. You are listening to the technology podcast that is for the love of tech, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. On today's show, we are talking to Rochelle Denton. She is a creative strategist who's just started her own business. Uh, And we're going to be talking all about how organisations can find voice, why they should create content, and some of the considerations behind that. And then for your news article, um, it's not actually an article, it's two short recordings. It's a report from the CIO water cooler that took place at the Merchant Players Hall last week here in London. Afternoon, Jack. Good afternoon, David. How are you? Very well, yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Um, still living on a high after the North London derby. This comes out after Arsenal have either lost or won or drawn with Man United. Oh, yes, that's tonight. Yes, tonight's this so, evening. Yeah. Well done, Everton, for beating Newcastle. But, uh, <laughs> you can foresee that already, <laughs> can you? Yeah, probably. Um, probably. Uh, but who cares? I'm, I'm on a plane. Who ca- yeah, you're off. He's off. I'm off again. Again. No, actually, I went away last in March, so... It wasn't March, it was more recent than that, wasn't it? That was March. Was it really? Yes. Oh, Ryoki. I know, it just seemed to go on a bit for you. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was living hell for me. Yeah, all the photos on Instagram, and hey, I'm on a beach, Jack. Uh, hey, it's March in England. But this time I'm not going to annoy you, because you're going to be recording the show with Josie. I'm going to be busy working hard, Dave, on, on you know, transforming this podcast into something totally new. I... Um... I joke. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Something I'd just like the listeners to uh, do, if you can, do us a favour. We've gone through a bit of a reorg on the website and we've got Mm. a news page. uh, And on Wednesday, so yes, today is as of recording, yesterday as of publishing, uh, Sean Bradley wrote an article for us. It's all about mental well-being in the workplace and how technology can help that. And it's got some great insight from uh, the likes of Babylon Health, or Babylon, Babylon AI rather, in that article it's a bit of a long read it's a couple of thousand words but Mm. it's really detailed really interesting we're trying to give you something other than just the sound of our voices let's (laughs) let's face it that could be a bit annoying and also Um, look Sean's not doesn't work for a recruitment company she's not an ex-recruiter or a bid writer she is a journalist she writes amazingly well not like two happy-go-lucky guys like us trying to be controversial and funny in text so why don't you check that out check that out go to tech-talks.co.uk Check out the news articles mm. uh, there. It's the most recent post um, all about wellness in the workplace. Um, there's still stigma around, me- around mental health. Um, Even that- this week after Tyson Fury. Yes. You know, that was, I mean, Tyson Fury's not everyone's cup of tea. He's, you know, he's hilarious, but he has said some not so nice things in the past. But uh, that's, yes. He has now, badly. yeah, he has yeah, some horrible things in the past, but he is now recovered from a massive mental health breakdown uh, he put on 10 stone was close to suicide and for all intents and purposes beat Deontay Wilder at the weekend even though judges didn't have got that way and he is now sort of a, uh, an ambassador for mental health which is a funny one you know a boxer for mental health but well, it's... Look, I, the one thing I will say uh, whilst I do not endorse a lot of Tyson Fury no. views anything that normalizes conversations around mental health exactly. particularly men yeah. and particularly you know, boxing, which is a macho sport. Yeah, alpha as you can be. Um, let's face it, traditionally British, British society is stiff up a lip. Yeah. You don't show emotion. And actually, that's dangerous. That's it's... genuinely dangerous. And if you look at the suicide rates amongst young men, they're yeah. horrifying. And that's largely, I think, because uh, British men, and even worse, I think, actually, in, in parts of Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, yeah. men are under huge pressure not to 
show that they are sensitive souls. Exactly, exactly. As Whereas, we proved it, it, like, on our podcast earlier in the week, just we about, about crying. Yeah, just about to say, you and I aren't afraid to uh, to show our emotional side ever. But no, it's. Uh, I was watching the new episode of People Just Do Nothing last night, and sorry to digress even more, but the lead character in that thinks he's having asthma attacks, but in actual fact he's having panic attacks because he's not talking to his friends and wife about the problems. Yeah. So he's really getting himself worked up. The doctor says, tell me what's wrong. Tells him what you know, what's not physically wrong, but what's wrong in his head. And then he tells his wife he loves her, goes and sets up the radio station again. It's, yeah. it's uh, mental health. You need to talk about it. There we go. So anyway, we should, we should get to our interview. Uh, and as I mentioned, it is with Rochelle Denton. She is the uh, co-founder of the Storm Collective. Uh, she was a creative strategist who has worked with the BBC. Uh, and this is this basically, hopefully, I, I, I think it's got some great takeaways for businesses around content and voice. Have a listen. Stay with us for some insight afterwards, and there will be a report from CIO Watercooler to follow later in the show. So I'm sitting with Rochelle, Rochelle Denton. You are a content strategist. Is that the best way of describing what you do? Yeah, I actually call my, yes, but I actually call myself a creative strategist. Right. So uh, there's a bit of a hybrid land of uh, job title naming that comes in creative fields and especially in strategy. But I find that by saying a creative strategist, I help people differentiate between business strategy um, and purely content focus. So I do a lot of work with creatives in conceptualization phases, for example, yeah. which people who are focused entirely on content don't always get to do. So TV must be an interesting field to work in right now. Yes. Because obviously everyone's aware of this idea that the, the, the TV itself is becoming less and less important in the household. Um, what, how do you go into an organization that has quite a traditional pro- product, I suppose, and make it fit for purpose in, in the existing world? There's a really important um, element of strategy, I think, that needs to be defined up front when you've got a, a changing um, availability of product, is to look at the audience behavior, um, expectations, and match those to how you deliver an opportunity. So the BBC is lucky enough to have a plethora of linear availability, and they would be remiss to take that away. So there is a smart way of bolstering the opportunity for linear while still delivering avenues to digital assets such as the iPlayer uh, for people to discover content. And there's all sorts of different brands that are facing these challenges in different ways. So Netflix, for example, don't have a linear opportunity, so their Mm. model must behave in a different fashion. And I think when I come into any kind of business, really, but especially when it comes to a television product, is to look at the audience behavior uh, online where they're um, exhibiting a desire for entertainment or seeking knowledge, uh, interrupt that with something that feels um, like a normal journey and deliver an opportunity. It's up to them if they, you know, do video on demand or choose to tune in linearly or uh, bookmark it to save to play later online or offline I I think acknowledging that there's these multiple avenues in is is part of what makes a good foundation of a strategy that you're able to deliver those and have there been shows that you've you've worked on where you felt that there is still that opportunity for it to to feel like an event at a moment in time I kind of get the feeling with things like Blue Planet 2 for example even if you suck it on Netflix, you wouldn't want to change the model. It's kind of one of those things that everyone tunes in on a Sunday night for. 
So, there, so there's such such a plethora of um, TV genres. Um, without going into industry chat, let's just say if something is delivered in a way that feels live, then there is a feeling of having an appointment to view. Now, it doesn't actually have to have been filmed live, like The Apprentice, but if it's delivered linearly in whatever fashion that is, then people want to watch it with others. Sometimes it can be delivered in a full box set online type behavior like you would have seen with Stranger Things, and people will want to be part of a binge journey together that isn't play by play, second by second, but will be a way of exploring um, the content in a similar fashion to other people. So I think depending on the content, it will depend on how you deliver it. So you've said about Blue Planet and you're right, you, you would want to be respectful of the content and the way in which it's delivered. If you think about something like Blue Planet, it's got a family angle to it that creates an opportunity uh, to have a TV slot that speaks to that. Any kind of TV show that you're thinking about, if you were to create something that's family oriented and you were to give it a um, Saturday evening or Sunday evening slot, then people will be likely to dedicate themselves to that slot, sit down and watch it, want that behavior, and subsequently want digital content that complements that online before, sometimes during, and after. You mentioned there about the phenomenon of wanting to watch something with others, and, mm. and these days, that, I suppose that can be very well uh, exemplified by something like Love Island. Sure. As a creative strategist, what do you put the success of something like Love Island, where it's been so strong in such a small demographic, down to? There have been so many case studies pumped out around it, so this is entirely my opinion. Feel free to look them up. <laughs> <laughs> I think with something like Love Island, there is a very clever thought process behind it. So it's not a first series, the one that we've just experienced. Yes. So already you've established a pattern, a format, an expectation amongst an audience. There's a challenge with the first series that is different to an established narrative and, and format that you understand. Mm. And you have a very different uh, marketing proposition when you're delivering a new format. So there's a springboard for success. There is behavioral data that you can look at. What are the moments in which the audience connected with the most, talked about the most, hated the most, but essentially, what is it that they're having their conversations around? And then you build up what is essentially a conversation strategy around that data. So that when you're creating your next show, you can leverage those moments and that type of content. Now Love Island is smart enough to be structured in that everyone on the show has a device which records content that doesn't go anywhere except to the team that are creating content. So you suddenly have exponential amounts of content, multiple sources uh, that can be crafted into a story narrative that is above and beyond television cameras capturing what they're capturing. So you have an opportunity, if you like, of a, a kind of choose your own adventure, a scenario in which you can spill off all sorts of minutia of narratives if the audience latches on to a moment, you have the supplementary contact content and they also have the team that are set up to make that supplementary content turn into digital content that's supporting what's happening online. And then suddenly you have a conversation that is outside of your TV slot. You have a conversation that can extend a week, 
much longer because you can have a love story or you can have a reaction to another human being or you can have a, a, a connectivity with a character that you don't get to have if you don't have that access to a plethora of content and an opportunity to have that signed off with some immediacy. So what lessons from something like that, from a huge TV show where it's got mass appeal, can you take into the SME world? Because they are talking about lots and lots and lots of data, those, those conversation points you've got, huge amounts of information to kind of utilise. There are increasingly a lot, of, a lot of firms interested in podcasts and creating their own content and, and doing similar, similar uh, or trying to take audiences on similar journeys, I guess. How, what, what can they take away from the success of something like a Love Island or a Blue Planet and, and try and replicate that on a smaller scale? So we like to joke that um, you can, if you can't sell entertainment and build a strategy around it, then you're in trouble because people actually want to be entertained, right? Sure. Uh, smaller businesses have a different challenge because they're not necessarily selling entertainment. They could be selling something that's completely dry and different. The idea is that for a successful strategy that you are looking at your audience and surrounding communities and behaviours, looking for the holes that exist within that and looking to fill that hole with your product. If you look at the way a community is behaving and you say, oh, they're actually very interested in this one type of content and this one conversation and there isn't lots of supplementary opinion, there isn't lots of diversity. That could be a way in which you can begin to actually have a voice within a community that is relevant and interesting. Mm. You will suffer if you say, I want to have a podcast because I hear podcasts get me an audience. Yes. Because that's like saying, I want a bus because I've seen lots of people on it. It's not accepting of the vehicle. <laughs> it's not understanding of the behavior. So what's the best way for, for a legacy brand to build a voice? Is it to ignore a poor market and say let's try and invent something entirely new for ourselves that, that has a different new voice that actually is related to us or is it where, where do they find their how do they find that niche and the firms that you work with I've, I've heard it said before that you need to kind of allow yourselves to be put in a vulnerable position when you create content you know really great content is about taking risks do, do, do companies respond to that uh, there's all sorts of nervousness around risks because my perception of a risk is different to yours, etc., etc. Mm. So if I say risk to some people, they think that that means that they're putting their shareholders at risk, but well, that's not necessarily what we mean. Um, I think I think the easiest way to have an opinion is to look back to your fundamentals about why you actually exist as a business and you're existing because you have a USP. You have a unique point of view and a unique service and if it's not entirely unique, your way of delivering or your take on it or some element of your service is unique. Mm. You may be the cheapest, you may be the fastest, you may be the most local, but it is that element that makes you unique and that is the point in which you must springboard your conversations from to have with your audiences. The, the thing that makes 
good content worth investing in and good conversations worth investing in is that they will do the bit that you should be getting for free anyway so that your paid media and your paid media structures can deliver on the audiences that are harder and not as natural for you to find. Mm -hmm. So you should be able to have a conversation and an opinion. What's interesting is lots of businesses overlook tastemakers and opinion formers within their own environment, quote, because they're busy or mm. they don't like social or they don't want to be filmed or there's a very small nuance but there is a way of drawing out the interesting knowledge from within your business and putting it out there on behalf of your brand mm. everyone knows that person in the office that knows more than they do about anything else that they kind of suspect the business might fall over without them right and what is it what what are those nuggets of knowledge about that person how is it they behave why do they know that thing why are they so particularly interesting. Good businesses are obviously are more than one of those people. Some lucky businesses are made of those people. But it's finding an opportunity and way of getting them involved in your content. It isn't about ticking a box. It isn't about making sure you have a podcast for the sake of a podcast or having Twitter because your competitors have it. You, you need a reason to add to the noise of content. Do you think enough businesses understand the value of their audience? So there's, obviously, there's often a thing in, in a lot of enterprise businesses where... You know, um, return on investment gets in the way of innovation or iteration. Do you think that that's the same with regards to content and creative strategy? Yeah, I think most businesses know this, but most businesses suffer from um, an inward view where they become quite focused on the business, the business structure, the business behavior, the departments, and forget or not forget, but lose sight of an audience need, an audience interaction, and an audience forecast. Mm. So that they can look at what growth figures they would like to attain, for example, but without thinking about what the audience wants from that. So yeah. the kind of strategies that I work really hard on is developing a value exchange. It's been really clear. We know what we want as a business. What do the audience slash customer slash client want from us in order to exchange that value. Mm. What are we offering them? And if all we're offering them is our product that's a pen, then they'll take the pen and go. But if we're offering them a journey into their imagination in which the pen sets them free, then that's a whole other point of view. And I think it's about creating uh, something that speaks to an audience need in a genuine way. So I was being a little bit facetious there, obviously. Not every pen has to sell a you know, Shakespearean novel. But it, it is about speaking to your audience in a most genuine way that is, that is satisfying a need that they have come to you for and making you the clear choice within that environment rather than you saying, well, this department has to perform X folds in order for it, us to meet your business success. That is 100% true. But what is the audience need and what is the audience value exchange? What are they getting on behalf of helping you meet that percentage? Now, how do you, um, this is the last question, how do you determine what kind of platform a business should use and what platforms are emerging that you think are really interesting? Because obviously there's a huge amount of saturation. You kind of look at Facebook and people generally see, what, one and a half thousand pieces of content a day on Facebook on average. Um, I suppose, if you're interested in writing and you want to become a better writer, Medium is a platform, but there's just so much choice out there. So how do you kind of get an understanding of, of where to go first? I think this is, this is part of the thing of creating what is essentially a smart content and social strategy in, in that 
you're looking at a business need and a business opportunity and taking it from there. Every platform is designed to do something slightly different because if it wasn't, it wouldn't exist anymore. And that's why the smaller ones get eaten up and disappear relatively quickly mm. and their functionality gets brought into a bigger player yeah. because the bigger player sees the opportunity for that functionality, but then you, you, you won't compete against each other in a space. So Twitter has put its stake firmly in the ground against moment-by-moment. Moment. If you were not a moment-by-moment news-led interactive business, then you don't really need to be there. It's controversial, but if you, especially if you are on shoestrings, especially if you are making a foray into this environment, you need to create a focus. And just like you wouldn't put a product to market in every possible touch point, you do need to create a focus in order to get some learnings and some success. Mm. There's also demographics to consider. Yeah. Most people kind of know that instinctively, but if you don't look for a person of influence in that market that can guide you through that as a territory, then you kind of may as well ask your 14-year-old son to set up your company Facebook account because it's <laughs> going to be the same. While I think there's such amazing functionality coming out of these um, coming out of these social media providers, there's also real opportunity to recognize the power of being a content source. So Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, they all are businesses that need content in order to survive. And you are creating content. So you might think, oh, well, our little whatever doesn't actually contribute much, but it does. It contributes something to them. And you would be remiss not to look at what you might have that is distinct and unique and attractive and speak to a platform about what innovations they are, they are looking at and how, what avenues they're looking at getting into. You know, I speak to people that work at Facebook and they're talking about sustainability. That might be surprising to some people, but it's important to people who are on Facebook, therefore it's important to Facebook. Facebook. Mm. And this level of granularity is across all social media platforms and you will find it increasingly very interesting. I think when people are thinking about these different platforms and where to go, it's not just uh, a must be in these places because that's where I must be. It's how do my audience behave? Are they in those platforms? Is it appropriate to their demographic, their location, their behavior every day? And therefore, should we be there and be a part of a conversation? Because if there's conversation happening already around you or your behaviors or your brand and you're not a part of it, well, you have no control. But if you're a part of that, you have an opportunity to engage one-to-one -one in a way that you don't often get that's outside of perhaps a retail store or a telephone call. Look, thank you for some time and sharing a coffee with me. Pleasure. I know that you've got a busy day. <laughs> but it's been really interesting to hear some insight. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed everything continues to, uh, to go well with the various different clients that you're working with. Thank you very much. Everyone loves a binge journey. Everyone loves binge journey. Everyone does. Who doesn't binge? Um, I, I, we very nearly got sucked into starting ER again. Oh, wow, throwback. Which is amazing because it starts in the early 90s and it finishes like nearly 2010. Oh, so wow. at the start, like mobile phones are these alien weird things. You just see technology kind of... Yeah. I think anyone who's interested in technology, and this being a technology podcast, hopefully yeah. they are, watch ER. You get to see technology suddenly change the world in, in 20 years worth of, of television, yeah. which you can probably get through in about three months. That's, I've, I've <laughs> never thought of it that way, but I suppose okay. when you think about it, yeah. I mean, 
Um, anyway, yeah, and you could talk about Love Island legitimately. Uh, my first point I wanted to raise was here you are sitting down with a, a professional creative content strategist who's worked with the BBC, and you can't wait to start talking about Love Island. I, I've never been prouder, Dave. And Blue Planet. And Blue Planet. But that, that, that's a, as good a place to start as any because I wholly agree with you. When you watch things like Blue Planet, uh, your Attenboroughs and stuff like that, you don't want to watch it at lunchtime. You don't want to watch it on a random Tuesday evening. It's a Sunday night thing. It's yeah. a Sunday evening thing. And I've, I never thought about that until, until you, and, um, you and Rochelle were talking about it. Rochelle, yeah. Rachel. You know, Dynasties, which is on at the minute. Yeah. Absolutely same again. Any, yeah. any yeah. of those big kind of nature documentaries that really kind of are frankly just mind-blowing at times. Yeah. You need... Because oh. you thought about the penguins. No, not yet. Oh, you got I love penguins. If anyway. I could be any penguin, it'd be a female penguin. You will be in any animal. Of tears. Sorry, floods oh. of tears. You say if I could be any female? If I could be any animal, it would be a female preg- penguin. <laughs> but it would be any a female pre- pregnant penguin. No, 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 no. If I could be, let me explain <laughs> myself. If I could be any animal, it would be a female penguin. And there's there's good logic behind that for me, right? So penguins live the dream. They're always sliding around, chasing fish, and all the rest of it. Stop. Sorry. Watch dynasties. That might change your opinion. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> if we get onto the serious stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think it's really uh, interesting the way that she talks about Love Island. So, I'm getting onto the serious yep. stuff, and going back to Love Island. <laughs> uh, but in terms of how you build that audience, and yes. I think we often expect content, and organisations are under pressure at the minute to create content, to have a brand, to have a voice. We expect it to have this immediate impact. Mm. And she talks about the fact that Love Island actually. You know, we, it's very successful, but it was a slow burner. Yeah. And that that success is built on a springboard that the audience has got to know a pattern, a format, mm-hmm. there's an mm-hmm. expectation. Mm-hmm. Most content isn't overnight. No, no. And you think, I mean, the journey Love Island's come on, it was on TV screens 10, 15 years ago, and it was even more sorted back then. But it had to reestablish itself all over again. And what I found most interesting is, and it's, it's weird, it's almost scientific the way that uh, Rachel was talking about it in terms of like each person is bringing a narrative. Each person has content with them. Each person is developing that as they go. Our behaviours and what we react to most is then what we see as a result of all these various different pieces of content flying around on Love Island. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, they're going to show the conversation where there's the most swear words in or where someone's cried or someone's been nasty. But in actual fact, there's... And, and this, is, this is crazy coming from a content writer myself, how much science almost goes behind the, the way in which we want to see content and the way we, we're fed content. It makes you worry that we're slightly amateur, really. And we're very amateur. I mean, uh, there, there was the point that she made, it's towards the end, you need a reason to add to the noise of content. And I yeah. thought, noise of content, if that doesn't sum us up, I don't know what does. Well, yeah, no, I highlighted the, you know, have a reason to add your voice. But I, I think that's an interesting point as well. You know, she, she says... Um, you know, you want to be on the bus because there are lots of people on the bus. That's yeah. the wrong behaviour. Yeah, don't, don't get just, Twitter because someone yeah. else... Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, be, don't have a YouTube ch- video... Yeah. Sorry, don't have a YouTube channel because you hear that there's children seven years old who make 17.2 million or whatever it was in the news this week. It's not going to happen, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Or because you're told that having a podcast is the vogue thing to do. Yeah. Um, you've got to work out what your USP is, yes. what the fundamentals of your business are. And, and actually... Taking that springboard example, mm. um, where Rochelle's talking about what's the fundamentals of your business, you have a USP. She, yep. she says that's the springboard for your conversation with your audience. Yep. If we're saying there's not overnight success stories, generally speaking, with content, then you have got to build on what 
is, is successful for your business and then look for the holes. Yep. So get an audience interested in the topic. Look, look, you know, see if they respond to something. Is there supplemental content around that? And then you can have a voice in mm. that space, but build on what you already know. I, I, I found it so interesting because the work, the term USP is thrown around a lot, especially in my line of work in, in bids and tenders. What is your unique selling point? And so often I, we seem to forget that unique it's just that, it's your uniqueness. And that reminded me very much of many of the startup uh, interviews we've had where they say, we came to market because we had a product that the market needed. There was yep. a hole that we had to fill. That uniqueness is what's made um, a startup successful. You know, that uniqueness yes. is why what three words will take over the world because it's very unique, you know, things like that. And to, to do that from like a content strategy point of view as well, like thinking of your uniqueness there, it's it's seemingly forgotten by I think a lot of big brands their uniqueness like I couldn't tell you what the uniqueness of Tesco Sainsbury's Barclays you know these these huge brands are they're not unique anymore they, I also I also think that she came out with some really interesting comments um, that that uh, relate to your your voice mm. on different platforms you know lessons for business if you can't sell entertainment you're in trouble we want to be entertained it's so you know, gladiator that line we want to be entertained <laughs> <laughs> so you mean ITV gladiators like the 90s or? no Russell Crowe's oh, gladiator right, okay. sorry we uh, want to be entertained because he says are you not entertained oh yeah we want to be entertained I immediately thought of Ulrika Wolf. and John, and John yeah. Fashion move for some reason <laughs> anyway um, but you know that whole kind of like the, the reason why Startup Van have been so successful is they are entrepreneur entertainment. They yep. take something that is fundamentally serious, mm -hmm. but they do it in an inclusive and, um, and interesting and fun way. Mm. And I think it's important that, that organizations think about their USP, but don't just, don't be dry. Present what you have to say in a way that is going to capture someone's attention. Absolutely, absolutely. Sell your uniqueness, your uniqueness. The other really interesting lesson, and this is one that actually um, I should think about uh, personally, and, and so definitely shows that the podcast can teach us a thing or two. Absolutely. Uh, businesses overlook people in their own business because they don't like to be filmed. Yep. We despair the fact that we've got a load of consultants there who have got some really valuable insight in the market, but yeah. they don't want to do social, or they yeah. don't want to be on film, or they, th they just think it's cringe. Yeah. And it makes me so mad when they say that because it's like just share what you're saying it's easy doesn't it? but fundamentally it is my job then to draw on that and eke it out in a way that we yeah. can repackage and share it yeah. that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable and, and I think there's probably a lot of businesses out there who do have these absolute subject matter experts sitting yep. in their businesses and they are not being utilized in a way that benefits that business, that brand, that voice. What is it? Is it, is it a self-confidence cringe thing like you said there, or is it uh, For some people, yeah. for some people that I speak to, um, I think it, they think it's a bit cringeworthy. Yeah, yeah no, totally. I mean, they see our videos and think, I don't want to look like an idiot like them too. Well, I think, I, think <laughs> they, I think that people look at it and go, it's entirely egotistical. Yeah, which, which we are. <laughs> which it's not. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't... I, we do everything we do for the community, right? That's, that's our thing. Well, we do it because, yeah. we have, because you have to do it. Yeah. In my opinion, yeah. the only way to engage and to grow a community is to put yourselves out yeah. there and share an opinion. Yeah. But what we do isn't the only way to share an opinion. What nope. Startup Van isn't the only way to nope. share an opinion. How Love Island builds its audience isn't the only way. And it, it's, it's 
on businesses to not overlook the people in their own business that can add value. Absolutely, and there are people in, that, in your business. There, there are innovators everywhere in your business. Absolutely. So look, uh, Rochelle, thank you for coming on the show. Um, I'm sure the Storm Collective is going to be a huge success. Uh, but she, she really, can come back and teach us a thing or two. Yeah, I think she can. <laughs> uh, I think there's not even a joke there. That's just, no, yeah. That's just sad truth. I'm being uh, serious, yeah. New Year, book it in. <laughs> there's some business for you, Rochelle. No. Um, anyway, we'll go to the advert break. Uh, when we return, we're going to bring you two very, very interesting reports from CIO Watercooler. Nigel Wilson, CTO at Microsoft. Aid McCormack talking about... Uh, the digitization of humans in the workplace. They are both worth staying tuned to listen to, but here's the advert break. As our listeners are aware, we have a wonderful deal for them via audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks, a free month's trial. And Christmas is coming up, isn't it, Jack? It very much is. It's it's so close now. People have got their Christmas trees up. Shops have got their decorations out. It's We're in the final rungs of the lead up to Christmas now. Michael Bublé is around every corner. Exactly. Now, if you go onto Audible, mm. what would you buy for your Christmas stocking filler? Do you know what? It's a little bit different. It's a little bit out there. But fans of the BBC programme People Just Do Nothing will know that the character, Chapadi G, has put out a comedy book, um, How To Be A Man. And it all pokes fun at his character and so on and so forth. And if you get the audio version, it's him narrating it as well. I'm sure it's delightful. It's not very festive. Not very festive, but I guarantee you it's hilarious. Good. Well, for balance, you could also, of course, go on and download The Snowman and the Snow God. Yeah, or Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Absolutely. Yeah. So, audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks. Why don't you find yourself a little treat for the festive season? Have a book on us. Welcome back to Tech Talks. It is time for your Thursday dose of news. <laughs> As we have said, we are reporting from the CIO water cooler. Mm -hmm. uh, their last live event was last week, last Wednesday, um, at the Merchant Taylor Hall in Central London, in, in the city, just around the corner. Start with Nigel Wilson, who's the CTO at Microsoft, talking about AI, and we'll end on aid. Um, both are fascinating, both very different subjects. Mm -hmm. um, we talked to Nigel about, well, we talked to Nigel about a number of different things, uh, surrounding AI, but one of them being, you know, do you think that four in ten organisations are getting value from AI? It, does that sound high or not? Because that was one of the stats that was in our recent report. Yeah, it sounds very high um, from what we hear. So he talks about how organisations are utilising AI mm. and where he sees real good case studies of, of, it, of it delivering value to business. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, and then AIDS talk. So he gave a keynote was fascinating mm. um, and the room was captivated it, he was a very good presenter but he was talking about um, kind of the, the, the digital industrial rev revolution kind of uh, 4.0 yeah yeah the fourth uh, one yeah but he was talking about it in terms that I hadn't heard it talked about before where we I think get very caught up on the how digital is going to transform the workplace and jobs it's never it's never been looked at 
in an anthropological historical case. Yeah. It's, it's always, we always think about it kind of transforming and going somewhere new. Yeah. And he was saying, no, this is a return to our base human needs. Mm. This is technology allowing us to break free of 200 years of business behavior that is just not natural. Yeah. And that was really fascinating. This idea that with human nature, it takes 25, so it's, it's something like anthropological needs exist in our nature for 25,000 years, and they were established when we were hunting something around 15,000, 20,000 years ago. Mm. So there's still a good 10 to 5,000 years of those needs around mobility and yep. soci sociability built into us. And when you're told to sit at a desk and shut up and not move anywhere, that's why we get depressed. That's why we have a work-life balance thing, because fundamentally we don't like work. And digital is like the vines creeping up and cracking through the factory floor and breaking that stronghold on us that, that we basically are rebelling against. So you're telling me that we've come so far with disruption, now digital disruption is disrupting evolution and anthropology in a positive way to reset us. Well, it's almost not disrupting it, it's almost... In a positive way, yeah, Augmenting, yeah. Yeah. but facilitating our yeah. true nature. It's a really different way of looking at it. Well, to me, it was a really different way of looking at it. It's Maybe fantastic. Maybe someone's going to go, hey, that theory's been around for ages. But it's interesting. And, and the, the, the benefits of business, and the interesting point is kind of all around leadership's not caught up. Mm. And that's a problem to you as a business from a culture point of view and a talent point of view if you don't catch on quicker. It's those classic middle-aged white men, ain't it? So anyway, here, here are these two short interviews. Uh, we will say goodbye now. Uh, join Jack and Josie whoop, 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 whoop. next week. Uh, we've got some great interviews coming up for you. It's just uh, going to be a show on products. Oh, <laughs> no, I've lined up some interviews for you. <laughs> uh, but until then, um, have a lovely weekend, listeners, and do listen to these two interviews. And safe flight to you, Dave. Cheers. Uh, so we've very kindly been given a few minutes of uh, Nigel Wilson's time. Nigel, you're CTO at Microsoft UK, Microsoft... Uh, so right. I, I actually work for kind of Microsoft in the US. US. Um, kind of work with the big four in professional services. So I'm mm -hmm. CTO, European CTO for professional services. And um, you've, you've got a particular personal interest in AI. I have, yes. It's a, well, both kind of like professionally because in professional services at the moment, it's a, a very, a very big topic. They're all kind of interested in kind of exploring the possibilities, but uh, also got a personal kind of interest uh, in it as well and kind of following um, kind of on Twitter. Yeah. And look, I was, I was lucky enough to, to be sat on the table that was talking about um, kind of getting value from AI in business, which is something that I think a lot of organizations are challenged with at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be that there's a lot of, well, that AI isn't particularly well understood or well defined by a lot of people when they're talking about it. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, no, I think that's very fair. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, what you allude to is there's a lot of hype around AI. Uh, and kind of uh, artificial intelligence is a kind of a broad term um, and covers a lot of different kind of technologies and, and kind of people um, don't tend to differentiate between the, the kind of different technologies. Uh, and I guess for me, it, it, it's very broadly two things. One is machine learning, uh, and that is just kind of finding patterns and analysis in data. And the other side of it is deep learning. And that's probably the more interesting bit and the bit that is more kind of artificial intelligence, if you want to call it. Um, which is things like speech recognition and image recognition is actually where we're using deep learning neural nets 
um, to uh, you know to kind of derive uh, kind of information. Where have you seen good user cases where people are delivering value to a business through deep learning at the moment? Yeah, so so I guess it's more around uh, at the moment for the particular things I'm seeing around speech recognition than it is mm -hmm. image recognition. Um, but speech recognition is being used kind of every, every, everywhere and lots of organisations are looking at it. And I'll give you a, a kind of few examples. Um, so one is in professional services, they do a lot of audits uh, and as part of those audits, they'll interview clients. A lot of the time that'll be over the kind of telephone uh, or maybe in person. Uh, they record those and then tend to go back to those recordings afterwards, transcribe, write reports. Um, so they're looking at it and are using it to uh, do voice-to-text transcription. So mm. they'll do a, do a transcription and then from the transcription to kind of look for the kind of keywords, key elements within, those, um, w within that text and then start to pre-populate reports. Um, in terms of the hype, I wouldn't pretend that um, you can do a, a kind of an interview and automatically pre-populate a kind of report. But if you could get 50% of the way there, yeah. then that kind of gets you you know, an awful lot more productivity per employee. So it's this uh, kind of augmented intelligence, if you like. It's kind of using the combination of the kind of person and the technology in order to kind of create the savings. Regarding that, that hype piece, I was, I was looking at um, uh, a report recently that stated that four in 10 organizations were saving or making money from artificial intelligence. And I felt that was, was inflated. And I can't help but feel it's probably a case that, that leaders are going to their boards and going, oh yeah, we're investing in, in artificial intelligence. And funnily enough, around that table, one person admitted that if they'd done something uh, positive, they'd attribute it to AI, which only, I suppose, reinforces from a board point of view that, oh, hey, you know, we're using t artificial intelligence where possibly we're not. Yeah. Um, what needs to change to help mature the industry um, fr from that perspective? Is it is it the onus on the technology leaders or do boards really need to wise up and actually kind of question what's what yeah so, so I think there's an element of um, education that's kind of needed um, around kind of what artificial intelligence is and kind of what it can do but I, th I think it you, we tend to, see, tend to see these things in kind of like a cyclical nature so if you think about innovation mm. that used to be the artificial intelligence so everybody talked about innovation and we, you know we need to kind of have um, kind of agile and you know rapid failure and and I think that you know, AI has just kind of replaced innovation as the new buzzword in, in the kind of board. Um, and, and it tends to be self-propagating as well. So kind of people um, you know, at board level are, are kind of expecting to see AI, but also in the city they expect to see kind of analyst reports and things that mention AI within companies. Um, and, and I think the only way that we're going to uh, kind of start to uh, kind of change that really is um, in kind of education of people as to kind of what is actually achievable. Um, Kind of you talk about the kind of AI journey if you if you know, kind of think of a you know development of a human being from a kind of child all the way through to an adult really where we are with AI at the moment is very much at the kind of baby phase yeah. it's kind of learning about the world it's understanding people kind of perceive it as being this kind of all-knowing or you know all-seeing thing already and it, it, it's not there yet um, we're very much at the kind of evolution of this technology and I think that's the thing that we need to kind of get across to people yeah. look it's been fascinating to have a quick chat with you thanks for giving up some time and uh, enjoy the rest of the CIO water cooler. Thank you, pleasure. Thanks, David. You've just given a talk here at the CIO water cooler event. It was a fascinating chat. I don't know how we're going to boil this down into to two or three minutes, so I'll pick on a couple of points if that's okay. Sure. Um, you talked about the fact that um, people have anthro anthropological drivers. Yes. Which is, is both kind of obvious, but also totally startling. 
when you make the points that I, I think there was a line that you said that, uh, um, the, that it's like the vines of nature pushing through the factory floor yes. and attacking kind of the traditional model that I suppose we've got of business. Can yes. you just kind of expand on that? Because I thought it was a really interesting point. Sure. Well, if you consider that we spent most of our time on the planet as being tribal, mm. and that only changed around 12,000 years ago, and um, human adaptations take about 25,000 years to work their way through, we are still tribal. And people... Um, Back then, uh, were highly mobile, highly social, work-life mm. integrated, highly creative, curious, courageous, high degree of autonomy, judged on their productivity. That's how we were. That's how we are. But the industrial era suppressed all of those because we literally became compliant cogs in the factory machine. We were happy to do that for the economic gains, but we lost our humanity in the process. Yeah. The digital age for me is us returning to our true nature. So it's humanity on steroids, if you like, augmented with new technologies. So the digital age is not about new technologies, it's about boosting our natural anthropological drivers. And if we build that into our organizations in terms of how we treat our talent and the services we deliver to our markets, uh, we will have a long future ahead of us. And you talk there about how we treat our talent. You made a point that leaders exist to serve talent Yes. in, in this kind of new digital era. Um, what, what pitfalls do leaders or organizations tend to fall down on where, where that actually stops and, and they don't enable that, that to happen? Well, most well, organizations founded in the industrial era were based on a factory model. Mm. And the whole idea behind a factory model is predictability. Um, and that means compliance in the humans. So you, the last thing you want is your humans behaving like humans. You need them to follow the process manual. As a result, uh, we come to work every day. We have to suppress our humanity. And that might be actually on a factory line, or it might be in a kind of data factory line where we're living in a spreadsheet, mm. so to speak. So many of us are going to work each day and we're sleep working our way through our lives. And a lot of people are realizing life's too short. This is not for me. And the smart organizations are saying, no, we want you to stay in play, but we want to harness your, your, your true natural capacities. Um, which are essentially creativity. Yep. Uh, and that creativity is fueled by releasing these other anthropological drivers by allowing you to move around more, be more sociable, have a more flexible arrangement in terms of your work and your life. Because all of these things, all of these constraints, when you're not allowed to be mobile, you're not allowed to be social, you're not allowed to be creative, essentially they are suppressing us. Mm. And that has a cognitive cost. And that cognitive cost is cognitive waste that yep. could otherwise be applied to doing great things for customers. One of the very quick points to touch on, uh, you talked about a concept that I wasn't familiar with, biocentricity. And I suppose if we talk about the organization as a whole, you talked about an organization behaving like an organism and paying attention and that dictating how processes are built. Yes, and it's a bit of a mouthful of a word and, and the word is biotensegrity. Sorry, biotensegrity. Bio and essentially, a biotensegral or organism is one that is strong in every direction. Right. So we can take the building we're in at the moment, very, very strong. But if you turn it upside down, it collapses. Mm. So it's only good when a force is coming in one direction, i.e. gravity. But we live in a world now where organizations are getting forces in all directions and from unknown sources as well. 
And a biotensegral organization is one that absorbs these pressures and actually becomes stronger as a result. Right. So, for example, uh, humans working out in the gym, so to speak, they're actually damaging themselves in order to become bigger, stronger, healthier. So I believe that we need to build organizations as if we are essentially nurturing an organism. Look, it's some fascinating insight. Um, if someone wants to find out a little bit more about some of these concepts that you're talking about and, and, and the learnings, you've got uh, your own site and your own business. How, how would someone find that? Um, well, a lot of my thinking in this respect is on my um, Digital Readiness Institute website. Yep. So that's DRI dri.guide and I've also got my own personal website aidmccormack.com mm -hmm. and it's got my blog that's got about 500 odd entries in it so plenty of reading. Look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.